Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we are reviewing Mindless Eating by Brian Wansink. While we eat more than we think. This is a great uh, combination of a bit of social science and psychology and health and diet. So he looks at the factors in our environment that shape our behavior when it comes to eating. So sort of combining books like Predictably Rational, Influence, Persuasion, those style of books with food. Basically, how you can trick yourself to eat less and lose weight as opposed to the full-blown dieting approach. We overeat not because of hunger, but because of our family and friends, packages and plates, names and numbers, labels and lights, shapes and smells, distractions and distances, cabins and containers. So all these small things that you think don't have a big uh, influence, but from a behavioral economics point of view, they have a big impact on how you eat. So you can make these minor adjustments and end up eating much less and lose weight in a much more easier way. Hmm, It is crazy. And he goes through a hell of a lot of examples here as to why things that are seemingly invisible actually have a massive impact. So we normally think that, okay, okay, I'm just going to eat and when I'm full, I'm going to stop eating, but that's complete and utter bullshit. That's not what happens whatsoever. And this is the real reason why we keep eating and how we can then trick ourselves to eat less. So each day we have about 200 different decisions about food. And there might be things like breakfast or no breakfast, part of it or all of it, you know, whether you eat in your kitchen or your car. So if you apply behavioral economics to each of these 200 decisions, more of those decisions are going to be skewed toward the positive way of eating better or eating less. And this is what the whole book is about. Yeah. Brian's full um, idea is that deprivation diets don't work and instead we need to be looking at this mindless idea, this mindless approach to eating. So like deprivation diets, we all heard about our cousin, sister who went on this huge diet, she lost tons of weight, she kept it off and she's lived happily ever after. But the issue is with most deprivation diets is that our bodies fight against them in that we reduce our metabolism. Our brains fight against them in that it makes us want it even more when we say that we can't have it. And our day-to-day environment fights against them as well. And also he says that depriving yourself of good food is just a shocking way to live. Yeah, exactly. We all love our... Uh, everyone's got their own yeah. food <laughs> you say Everyone love. loves burgers, yeah. Oh, everyone, a lot of people love burgers, including <laughs> vegos and vegans. There's burgers for you out there as well. Don't so deprive yourself. Don't deprive yourself of burgers. <laughs> and he says, so when it comes to weight issues and everything, nobody just goes to bed or wakes up fat. It's really just a whole bunch of uh, small decisions, so 50 to 100 calories here or there. No one can really tell the difference between 2,000 and 2,100 calories. But in reality, that extra 100 calories per day over a year, you end up really stacking weight on. Yeah, he says that just 100 calories per day over the course of a year leads to a gain or loss of 10 pounds. And he says that whilst these deprivation diets, you can cut your caloric intake in half for a certain amount of time, it's not really feasible over the long run. He says that instead, if you just trim 100 or 200 calories a day, you don't notice it. You don't realize you're depriving yourself. You don't realize you're eating a little bit less. He calls it the mindless margin. But if you do it every day and just small little changes can add up over time to big results. He says the best diet is the one you don't know you're on. Bang. So you don't feel like you're dieting, but you're getting the positive results. So chapter one, the mindless margin. He says, did you ever eat that last bit of crusty, dried out old pizza that's been sitting in the fridge for three days? Were you actually hungry? Did you really enjoy it? Did you really want to eat it? He says it's just this mindless things around us that we get cued and we eat stuff that we didn't really want to eat. 
So when you have that crusty bit of disgusting fruit loopy thing with mold growing on it, but you just feel like you have to eat it because it's the last one on the plate. Everyone else is eating as this poor lonely thing on the plate. So that little bit of extra of a bigger plate means you're going to eat more. And throughout the book, he has these concepts that were kind of concepts we're talking about now, but through these hardcore studies he does in his labs. Okay, so one study he did, and his studies he likes to do is not just your, your weird studies. He likes to try and make them as realistic as possible. So he did a study in a movie theater. And what he did was he gave these movie goers, they got a ticket to the movies, and they got a, bo- a bucket of popcorn. And so what he did was some people got large buckets, and some people got medium buckets. And the difference was that a 53% difference in what they ate. The people with the large bucket ate 53% more popcorn than the people with the medium bucket. Now, they weren't 53% hungrier. They weren't 53% more in need of eating popcorn. All it was was that they had a movie that was going on that hadn't finished and they had a bucket of popcorn in their hands and they thought, okay, I've got a big bucket. I need to eat more. There was no cue to tell them to stop. That They, they didn't stop because they weren't hungry anymore. They just kept eating because they had popcorn sitting in front of them. So the takeaway from this is given a lot, they will eat a lot. In both cases, they didn't get to the bottom of the popcorn. It's just that their cue was they got this huge box of popcorn. So they actually, this triggered them to actually keep reaching in to grab more and more and more popcorn. And as you said, man, 53 increase is absolutely huge from this little tricky thing that they did in this study. And the twist at the end of the study says that it wasn't even good, tasty, hot, fresh popcorn. It was popcorn they cooked five days earlier, specifically so that it wasn't enjoyable. It was stale. It was a bit soggy, a bit crusty. It was no good, but they still ate so much shitty popcorn. Exactly. So the cue here, if you're going to stop eating, it's because there's nothing left in it. And at the end of each chapter, he's got re-engineering strategies where you can re-engineer your uh, lifestyle or seemingly innocuous things to actually end up eating less or eating better. So the strategy number one in this book is the 20% more or 20% less strategy. He says that we need to, because we are guided by you know, the food that's in front of us, we need to dish out 20% less food overall. So put 20% less on your plate and you're probably going to eat 20% less. Don't go back for seconds. Or if you're eating healthy things, put 20% more veggies on your plate. So very small things that all it is is just a simple change of what you're dishing onto your plate and it can completely change you know, how you look in a year's time. So that's the first concept and the first strategy using behavioral economics to eat a little bit less or eat a little bit better the second chapter is all about the forgotten food and he says your stomach can't count what you eat um, whether it's 20 or 40 french fries for example when you're on autopilot you can't really keep track of what you're eating naturally Mm, he says that most food when you're eating it it disappears and there's no trace of it left but some foods they do leave a trace like say you're eating chicken wings the bones left over on the plate will represent how much you've eaten. So he says that he did another study where it was Super Bowl Sunday. They had uh, in a bar, they had half the people were eating chicken wings and the waitress came and took the uh, bones away. They cleaned them up each time. They went back and got more. And the other half, they left the bones there. And what they found was that the people who had the eaten bones in front of them actually ate 28% less than the people who'd forgotten how much they'd eaten because the bones had been taken away. Exactly. It's a cue that there's seven chicken wings on the plate. So you realize we've eaten seven chicken wings. Mm. When they take away the bones, you just keep on eating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no cue there. Another thing, another study that he talks about here is that how long it takes actually to feel full. He says it takes 20 minutes 
between eating and then the actual internal cue that tells you that you're satiated and you realize you're full. And in that 20 minutes, that's enough time to wolf down another four uh, slices of pizza, drink a few glasses of Pepsi and so forth, and you've really eaten a shitload of kilojoules that your body actually doesn't really need. Mm, Definitely. There was a really cool study, and this is probably the most um, well-known study from this book and most uh, popular study is what he calls the bottomless soup bowl. And so this is something that actually Dan Ariely spoke about this about 12 months ago when we interviewed him. He says that so there was in this restaurant... They had this crazy contraption where there was underneath the table, people couldn't see it, but there was a pipe that went underneath into the soup bowl that kept feeding more and more soup in. So it went down at a slower rate. And what they did was half the people ate the soup out of the bowl regularly and half the people, when they ate a spoonful of soup, a bit less than a spoonful got put back in. So the the level of soup was still going down, but at a much slower rate than it should have been. And what they found was that the people where the soup kept getting back topped back up, they ate three times as much. And it wasn't that they thought at by the end of it, they hadn't eaten a full bowl, obviously, because it wasn't all gone, but they felt the same, they'd eaten the same amount of the people who didn't get it topped back up, even though they'd eaten three times more, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. And, they, and they were that, what they were actually saying was, oh, this is really filling soup. It's really <laughs> filling up. That's because they ate three times as much. <laughs> so this is chapter is all about the forgotten food, right? So... The first thing you said was about the chicken wings. If you can't see the chicken wings on the plate, it's a cue to keep on eating more because you can't see what you've already eaten. The same with the soup. When it goes uh, down the gurgler, you can't see what you've eaten, so your brain says, no, I've got to finish this. And then the third thing was it takes 20 minutes to actually feel like you're full. So again, more forgotten food is you just wolf down. In all these three cases, you eat a lot more. So right now, he's got re-engineering strategy two in the book, and this is to see all that you eat. Yeah, he says that, say, if you are eating something that does have this reminder, whether it's chicken bones or whether it's pizza crusts or whatever, leave them out so that you see how much you've eaten. Or if you're at a party drinking beers, leave the beer bottles out somewhere that's visible so you realize how much you've drunk. Or if you're at a dinner party, leave the bottles of red wine out so everybody knows how much they've drunk. So chapter three is surveying the tablescape. And it might seem meaningless, but every item has a big impact on how much we eat or how much we drink, like the packages that our food comes in, the dishes we serve it on, the glasses that we drink from, and they can have a massive increase or decrease in it. And they can have a massive impact on how much we eat. Yes. So the tablescape, if you look around, it's filled with all these hidden persuaders. So again, we want to have these hidden persuaders leverage in the positive direction of our eating habits. And one way they found one of these hidden persuaders is actually the shape of drinking glasses. Now, one thing is it's known as a pretty popular um, brain illusion. It's the shape of any T-shaped object. The vertical line looks bigger than the horizontal line, even if they're actually the exact same length. Yeah, if the T, like the horizontal and the vertical T are the exact same length, the vertical one looks bigger. And so they applied that to drinking glasses that if you have a tall, skinny glass versus a short, fat glass, you're going to pour very different amounts of liquid into each because it's harder to estimate visually the horizontal distance. You can you can much easier estimate the vertical distance. So yes, our brains have a tendency to overfocus on the height of objects at the expense of the width. They had this study with bartenders who went to free pour all of their drinks. And you think bartenders are really confident with how they actually pour their drinks. What they found was when they had the tall skinny glasses, 
they poured much less than the short fat glasses by a factor of 37%. So if you're going to a bar and someone's free pouring um, and you're getting vodka, don't get the vodka in the tall glass. Get it in the short fat glass and you're going to get 37% more for free. Yeah, that's correct. That's really practical and, advice, and, man. And at the same time, if you're drinking soft drink, which is not good for you, <laughs> as if alcohol is <laughs> then drink from a tall skinny glass and you're actually going to drink a lot less than if you're drinking soft drink out of a short wide glass if you're drinking water drink from a short fat glass and you drink more than you actually think or just throw out all your fat glasses yeah most things you drink glasses. aren't going to be good for most yeah. people out there <laughs> yeah, actually that's very everyone's true everyone's quite fat the tall, the tall, <laughs> tall skinny glasses is a way to trick yourself into drinking less soft drink Another interesting study they conducted is in regards to variety. Here they had uh, two parties, NBA parties, where at one party they had 12 bowls and another party they had three bowls. So the one with 12 bowls, there seemed to be extremely more variety, but in both cases there is the exact same volume of food at the party. And what they found was those with 12 bowls and that additional variety, they actually ate 18% more food, even though it's the exact same amount of food at both parties. Yeah, because if you think about it, okay, if there's there's 12 different bowls, there's more things for me to eat, you're going to try a little bit of everything. Whereas if it's more condensed, you're not going to be wanting to pick everything out there. And so it's just another way that we trick ourselves. Okay, so this chapter three was about surveying the landscape. The two studies we talked about was tall glasses and fat glasses and the other one regarding variety. Again, at the end of this chapter, he's got re-engineering strategy three. And this is be your own table scaper. So you want to have smaller boxes of food and smaller bowls. So buying rather than buying the mega ultra pack, get the smaller packets. Even though they're a little bit more expensive, you're going to eat less. He also says buy smaller plates because like even the difference between a 10-inch plate and a 9-inch plate, you're not going to notice it, but you're going to put less food on because less food looks bigger on a smaller plate. And as we said, slender glasses will make you drink less. And the final thing he says here is beware the double dangers of leftovers. The more dishes you bring out of the fridge for everybody to eat, the more your brain is going to try and try that little bit more of everything and you're going to end up eating a lot more if there's more variety around. Chapter 4, he talks about the seafood trap and he talks about the difference between having clear dishes versus having like opaque like white dishes or silver dishes that you can't see through. In this interesting real-life study, he had two samples of secretaries in a big corporate. Now, one group of the secretaries had clear dishes with Hershey's Kisses in it, and the other one had non-clear white dishes with Hershey's Kisses in it. And what they found was those who were given the clear dish, they actually ate 71% more than those with the white dish. And the reason this is, every time the people, the secretary saw the clear dish, they had to make a decision then and there, no, I don't want to eat a Hershey's kiss. They look away, they look back, no, I don't want to eat a Hershey's kiss. The ones with the white dish, they didn't have to keep making that decision not to eat the Hershey's kiss. Mm, exactly, much less decisions there. Another one that they talked about is making it harder, making it more difficult to get food. So a study on rats was that uh, rats, there was a, a lever, if they pressed the lever 10 times, they got a reward or the alternative was if they pressed the lever a hundred times they got a reward and obviously the rat that pressed only 10 times 
ate a lot more shit because it was a lot easier to get. So I guess a real-world application of this is don't open the pack of the M&Ms and sit them on your desk where it's very easy to get. If you're going to have it, sit it like you know three meters away where each time you have to get up and walk over to get it. Just that extra little bit of effort can make you eat less. Yeah, another ex- that, that example in my own life is really big. Is um, It comes down to almonds. So say if you want to eat almonds, if you have almonds that are unshelled, uh, it's much more easy to jump in and grab almonds. But if they're all shelled, it takes a lot of effort per unit food to take. So the easier it is to, to get your food, the more you're going to eat. So re-engineering strategy number four here, he says make overeating a hassle, not a habit. So you need to make it harder to eat a lot, like say moving your dishes further away like we said. Deconvenience tempting foods. When you go to tempting food, make as many steps between you and eating it. He had a story in, uh, actually, I think it was in his other book called Slim by Design where each day there was a, a overweight corporate dude and he drove to work and every day he drove home, he said, I have to go get a 7-Eleven Slurpee every day because I just love it. And so what he said was rather, okay, make one change. You can still have your Slurpee every day, but rather than grabbing it through the, you know, pick it up, drink it in your car, you have to drink it in your car, in the car park. And by just adding that extra little bit of inconvenience, it meant he got home 15 minutes later. So he lost 15 minutes out of his day by sitting in the car park, slurping on his Slurpee. And just by making it that little bit more inconvenient to do it, he drank less Slurpees. Yeah, I really like that one, man. Mate, so this is all easy shit you can just do that takes really no effort and you can actually lose a whole bunch of weight. So I really like these strategies. Number five is all about mindless eating scripts. And this is the idea that when we eat, we often follow the same scripts each time. So one example, he says that if you say on a Sunday morning, you grab the newspaper, you read the newspaper whilst eating a bowl of cereal and we've got this script that we're going to keep eating whilst we're reading the newspaper. So maybe if we finish our bowl but we've still got more paper to read, we go grab another bowl or say if we're watching TV and we think, okay, each night I'm going to watch this episode of my TV show, I'm going to grab a packet of popcorn and then you think, okay, every time I'm sitting down to eat, I have to eat a packet of popcorn. It's this script that becomes mindless so that we just eat more. Everyone's got different scripts. My one's probably when I have a um, bottle of wine and do some work, which is probably odd already for some people. I always have a block of chocolate just sitting there. So whenever I do these certain events, certain things, there's always those extra kilojoules lined in these uh, scripts that I've already got. So the goal here is to really re-script all your danger zones where you think you're most vulnerable to overeat the wrong shit. Yeah, he says the danger zones here, the five most common danger zones are dinners, snacks, parties, restaurants, and desks. So if we just pick a few of these, obviously snacks is a bad one that we want to try and reduce the amount we're snacking. And desks, like the examples we said before, don't have an open packet of M&M sitting on your desk where it's very easy for you to just grab an M&M. So re-engineering strategy number five is all about creating distraction-free eating scripts. And when you're in these danger zones that you just mentioned, you might want to make the rule to eat in only one room only, not where you watch TV and not where you read, just so when you sit down, you don't end up eating, I don't know, a whole box of Tim Tams or something. Yeah, as delicious as they are. Chapter six is the name game. And so it's interesting that how simple changes in what we name the foods has a big impact on how much we like it, how much we enjoy it, and also how much we eat it. So taste actually resides in our head as well as in our mouth. So what he's saying here is our brains really make up 
what it thinks it tastes rather than what it objectively tastes. So your expectations about what a food is going to actually taste like actually has the influence of the actually chewing moment when you're actually telling yourself what it tastes like. Mm, he says our brains taste what we think we're going to taste. And I guess because there are so few different tastes, uh, we're very influenced by what we think it's going to be. So one example we had was where he got... He was doing a test. He framed, He told these people, okay, here, I've got these two new types of strawberry yogurt and I'm going to do a test here and tell me which type of strawberry yogurt do you like better? Do you like the the full-fat strawberry yogurt or do you like the non-fat strawberry yogurt? So anyway, they all did their test. They all picked one or the other. No one suspected anything and at the end, he actually said it wasn't strawberry yogurt. It was actually vanilla yogurt with chocolate sauce stirred in to make it look the similar color as strawberry yogurt. Implicit in his question was, it is strawberry yeah. yogurt, so their expectation was it's strawberry yogurt. And then on the stro- strawberry yogurt taste spectrum, they answered, not knowing that it actually wasn't strawberry yogurt at all. He had some funny things as well. He's like, that people were saying, he's like, yeah, this one tastes a lot more strawberry than the other one, or I can really taste the rich, fresh strawberries in this, when clearly it was all just a matter of their mind making up what they thought because there was zero strawberries in there. So if you're a restaurant owner and you know that expectations have such a big influence on what you eat, this might be the difference between profit and loss and it actually can take place before the food is ordered. So so we want to be making positive expectations and it can come in a wide range of things. It might come in the terms of the descriptive words you use about the food or it might come in the lighting, the music and the table settings and so forth. There was another study they did where they had uh, a husband and wife, and they gave them a free, uh, a free meal, and they said that at the start of their meal, we're going to give you a free glass of red wine. And for half the people, they said, "Here's this, here's this glass of red wine from this new California winery." And California is known for their wines, uh, you know, very well-renowned wine region. The other half, he said, "Here's this brand new red wine from a new winery in North Dakota," which uh, I've never been there, but apparently there's no wine grown there whatsoever. So people are expecting the California wine to be a great wine and the North Dakota wine to be a shit wine. Really, both wines were the same. It was uh, Charles Schwab, which is uh, better known as Two Buck Chuck. So it was a pretty cheap, shitty wine. But because of the power of expectations, both uh, you know both people in the study drank all the wine. But due to the expectations, not only did they enjoy the wine more when they thought it was from California, they actually enjoyed the whole meal more because it was from California. So that one small expectation about the quality of the meal they're about to go in for permeated from the wine to the actual food itself. So re-engineering strategy number six, how can you this, use this in your life? If you're going to have people around for dinner, you need to make better expectation. You need to create expectations that are actually going to make you a better cook. So next time you're just cooking fish, don't just call it fried fish. <laughs> Call it succulent Italian seafood fillet. <laughs> I like it. So supposedly you're asked about other things that uh, what you put into your cooking. Start using words like it's a traditional, <laughs> it's cajun, it's succulent or homemade. <laughs> so this causes people to create the expectation in themselves that what they're about to eat is much better. So literally just using these few extra words in your vocabulary of your cooking is going to probably have the biggest impact on your cooking ability than actually learning how to cook better itself. Mm, he says that there's other things you can do. Obviously, the words are a big part of it, but also things around the atmosphere itself, like softer light. So he says if you eat by candles instead of bright lights, it's going to taste better. If you have nice fancy plates and cutlery instead of cheap plastic cutlery, it's going to taste better as well. So it's crazy that these small things 
in our atmosphere, in our environment, completely change how we experience the food. Exactly. So you can do these things, add these words, add these different things to the ambience and the vibe in the room, but just remember to take it out of the box before we put it in the oven. <laughs> <laughs> Is that one of your issues, mate? <laughs> <laughs> so you can feed him absolutely crap. But it doesn't matter because you're just adding these little tricks in there. There you go, mate, Machiavelli for you. <laughs> Chapter 8 is all about the nutritional gatekeeper. And what he's saying here is the nutritional gatekeeper, the, the man or the woman who goes out to buy all the food, makes all these food decisions, actually has the biggest impact on everybody's diet in that household. Mm, generally, if there's one person who goes and does the weekly grocery shop, they're the person who controls what food is in the house and obviously what food is in the house controls what food people eat. So he says that the the strategy here is to crown yourself as the official gatekeeper. So if you're the one who's making most of the decisions, it's then on you to choose healthy instead of unhealthy. And obviously that you know when it's late at night and you're a bit peckish, when you go to the cupboard, you're going to grab what's there. If a few days earlier on the weekend you grabbed healthy snacks instead of unhealthy snacks, you're going to be obviously eating the healthy snacks, which is much better. So that's strategy eight. Crown yourself the official nutritional gatekeeper. Now, chapter nine is about fast food fever. He asks the question, why is food conquering the world? And then the answer is it's, it's because we've been genetically designed to love it. Everything we love about our foods, the high sugar, the high fats, mm-hmm. the high salts, literally hunter-gatherers who we were only a few thousand years ago would have actually killed for literally. Right now, all we need to do is just go to 7-Eleven and we can get all these things for under 10 bucks. Yeah, I love it. Mate, you know what he says is interesting is that if you look at, say, McDonald's or a KFC drive through most people aren't the people driving through in BMWs and Teslas. It's people driving through the beat-up things with just a couple of coins in their pocket going for the, the easy, cheap option. So he says that these fast foods have a much bigger impact on like the poorer people than the richer people. The rich people have got you know money who can afford to eat fancy, nice places, whereas the poor people are getting the shittest food. Yeah, they're getting the five-buck Happy Meal from Macca's for the mm. kids, which is quite unfortunate. But <clears throat> so one of the, the research, some of the research he did on the topic of fast food was a comparison, comparison between Subway versus McDonald's. So they surveyed 250 people who ate at McDonald's compared to 250 people who ate at Subway and compared their caloric intake. Mm, you'd think that Subway is better because we think it's Subway eat fresh, it's salad, it's vegetables, it's all fresh, it's all healthy, whereas Macca's is just cheap, shitty fried burgers, which also taste good, but we know that they're not good for us. So on that, Subway has this health halo. So because they market themselves with this healthy fast food, they prescribe that one characteristic of Subway thinking it's healthy to all the things that are actually unhealthy in Subway. So what they found was the people at Subway... Um, 53% of them ordered the additional bag of potato chips. 27% couldn't resist the chunky cookies at the cash register. 37% ordered soft drinks with calories. 41% of them headed back for at least one refill. Mm. So because they thought Subway was healthy, they were under the illusion that everything they touched was good for them in Subway. But those in Macca's, they had a less rosy-tinted view of the world. Yeah, it's pretty funny. that The people in Macca's, they know they're eating shit. So they know that they're double bacon barbecue cheeseburger and their it's french fries they know it's bad for them so they're not they, going to triple up so they don't get they don't get triple up whereas the people in subway think oh yeah i'm doing really good here i'm having a salad roll and they realize 
uh, and then they actually get the cookies, they get the soft drink, and they really screw themselves because they think they're doing a good thing. Mate, that, I actually 100% yeah. fall for that one. <laughs> yeah, when I go to Subway, <laughs> always an extra three cookies. Yeah. In oh. my brain, I've, um, I'm thinking I'm eating well, but those three cookies, man, they're pure sugar. It's probably basic. You may as well just go to Macca's. Exactly. <laughs> Might as well get the double quarter pounder. <laughs> so the re-engineering strategy nine is go and eat the double quarter pounder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just strategy. fucking with you. Uh, strategy nine is portion size me. Yeah, exactly. So even if you think you're eating something healthy, you can be tricked into eating a lot of it. So you might be thinking, oh, I'm eating this healthy muesli bar. Oh, actually, maybe I'm still hungry. I'll have two muesli bars. Yes, beware the health halo. And this is something that was really prevalent when it came to low-fat foods in the past. Mm. Because something's low-fat, people assume that it's really good for you. But what they don't see is the hidden information that it's full of sugar mm. and all these other bad things for you. Yeah, and then when you have two low-fat yogurts thinking, oh, yeah, this is healthy, you get, mm. you get stitched up in the end by Mate, the health halo. Mate, just looking at what's on our table right now, we've got the Coke, no sugar. It's healthy, So the man. health halo here Let's is there's another. no sugar in it. No, it's all good. But I'm sure if we look at the um, <laughs> the label here, there's a lot of chemicals oh, that we've never heard of. I can guarantee that that was be, not good for us. I can guarantee <laughs> that. <laughs> Right, so where are we, man? So that's Mindless Eating by Brian Wansink. I really like it in that it's, uh, you know, obviously you can read extreme diet books. This is not going to help you lose, you know, 50 kilos in the next two months. But what this is going to do is have very small everyday impacts that you're not even going to notice. You're not going to realize I'm on a diet here. It's what he calls the mindless margin. You get 100 calories less a day. That adds up to 10 pounds less per year. Yes, and... The great thing about this approach for all you lazy people out there, it takes no additional willpower of depriving yourself against food. It's little tricks that you do around the house to actually make you eat those 100 or 200 calories less. So then you actually, over time, as you said, man, you lose a bit of weight without even realizing it. Brian Wansink's a bit of a controversial character at the moment. Some of his studies have been revoked, uh, but we're going to speak to him because I reckon he's a, probably a legend of a dude and he's got some great ideas. So we're keen to learn a bit more about what can we do to trick ourselves into eating healthier. So if you know somebody out there who needs to lose a few kgs or wants to lose a few kgs in the new year, share this podcast with them. I mean, we want to get our content to a bigger audience to have a bigger impact on what's going down in the world. And all this information can really help people out there. So, uh, do us a favour and do your mate a favour and go ahead and share this with them.